This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche. Chapter 9 Skirmishes in a War with the Age. Part 3. 36. A Moral for Doctors. The sick man is a parasite of society. In certain cases it is indecent to go on living. To continue to vegetate in a state of cowardly dependence upon doctors and special treatments, once the meaning of life, the right to life, has been lost, ought to be regarded with the greatest contempt by society. The doctors, for their part, should be the agents for imparting this contempt. They should no longer prepare prescriptions, but should every day administer a fresh dose of disgust to their patients. A new responsibility should be created, that of the doctor, the responsibility of ruthlessly suppressing and eliminating degenerate life, in all cases in which the highest interests of life itself, of ascending life, demand such a course. For instance, in favor of the right of procreation, in favor of the right of being born, in favor of the right to live. One should die proudly, when it is no longer possible to live proudly. Death should be chosen freely, death at the right time, faced clearly and joyfully, and embraced while one is surrounded by one's children and other witnesses. It should be effected in such a way that a proper farewell is still possible, that he who is about to take leave of us is still himself, and really capable not only of valuing what he has achieved and willed in life, but also of summing up the value of life itself. Everything precisely the opposite of the ghastly comedy which Christianity has made of the hour of death. We should never forgive Christianity for having so abused the weakness of the dying man as to do violence to his conscience, or for having used his manner of dying as a means of valuing both man and his past. In spite of all cowardly prejudices, it is our duty in this respect, above all to reinstate the proper, that is to say, the physiological aspect of so-called natural death, which, after all, is perfectly unnatural, and nothing else than suicide. One never perishes through anybody's fault but one's own. The only thing is that the death which takes place in the most contemptible circumstances, the death that is not free, the death which occurs at the wrong time, is the death of a coward. Out of the very love one bears to life, one should wish death to be different from this, that is to say, free, deliberate, and neither a matter of chance nor of surprise. Finally, let me whisper a word of advice to our friends, the pessimists, and all other decadents. We have not the power to prevent ourselves from being born, but this error, for sometimes it is an error, can be rectified if we choose. 
the man who does away with himself performs the most estimable of deeds. He almost deserves to live for having done so. Society, nay, life itself, derives more profit from such a deed than from any sort of life spent in renunciation, anemia, and other virtues. At least the suicide frees others from the sight of him. At least he removes one objection against life. Pessimism, pur et ver, can be proved only by the self-refutation of the pessimists themselves. One should go a step further in one's consistency. One should not merely deny life with the world as will and idea, as Schopenhauer did. One should, in the first place, deny Schopenhauer. Incidentally, pessimism, however infectious it may be, does not increase the morbidness of an age or of a whole species. It is rather the expression of that morbidness. One falls a victim to it in the same way as one falls a victim to cholera. One must already be predisposed to the disease. Pessimism in itself does not increase the number of the world's decadence by a single unit. Let me remind you of the statistical fact that in those years in which cholera rages, the total number of deaths does not exceed that of other years. 37. Have we become more moral? As might have been expected, the whole ferocity of moral stultification, which, as is well known, passes for morality itself in Germany, hurled itself against my concept beyond good and evil. I could tell you some nice tales about this. Above all, people tried to make me see the incontestable superiority of our age in regard to moral sentiment, and the progress we had made in these matters. Compared with us, a Caesar Borgia was by no means to be represented as higher man, the sort of superman which I declared him to be. The editor of the Swiss paper, the Bund, went so far as not only to express his admiration for the courage displayed by my enterprise, but also to pretend to understand that the intended purpose of my work was to abolish all decent feeling. Much obliged. In reply, I venture to raise the following question. Have we really become more moral? The fact that everybody believes that we have is already an objection to the belief. We modern men, so extremely delicate and susceptible, full of consideration one for the other, actually dare to suppose that the pampering fellow-feeling which we all display this unanimity which we have at last acquired in sparing and helping and trusting one another marks a definite step forward, and shows us to be far ahead of the man of the Renaissance. But every age thinks the same. It is bound to think the same. This, at least, is certain, that we should not dare to stand amid the conditions which prevailed at the Renaissance we should not even dare to imagine ourselves in those conditions. Our nerves could not endure that reality, not to speak of our muscles. The inability to do this, however, does not denote any progress. 
but simply the different and more senile quality of our particular nature, its greater weakness, delicateness, and susceptibility, out of which a morality more rich in consideration was bound to arise. If we imagine our delicateness and senility, our physiological decrepitude as non-existent, our morality of humanization would immediately lose all value. No morality has any value per se. It would even fill us with scorn. On the other hand, do not let us doubt that we moderns, wrapped as we are in the thick cotton wool of our humanitarianism, which would shrink even from grazing a stone, would present a comedy to Caesar Borgia's contemporaries, which would literally make them die of laughter. We are indeed, without knowing it, exceedingly ridiculous with our modern virtues. The decline of the instincts of hostility and of those instincts that arouse suspicion. For this, if anything, is what constitutes our progress, is only one of the results manifested by the general decline in vitality. It requires a hundred times more trouble and caution to live such a dependent and senile existence. In such circumstances, everybody gives everybody else a helping hand, and, to a certain extent, everybody is either an invalid or an invalid's attendant. This is then called virtue. Among those men who knew a different life, that is to say, a fuller, more prodigal, more superabundant sort of life, it might have been called by another name, perhaps cowardice, or vileness, or old woman's morality. Our mollification of morals, this is my cry, this, if you will, is my innovation, is the outcome of our decline. Conversely, hardness and terribleness in morals may be the result of a surplus of life. When the latter state prevails, much is dared, much is challenged, and much is also squandered. That which formerly was simply the salt of life would now be our poison. To be indifferent, even this is a form of strength. For that, likewise, we are too senile, too decrepit. Our morality of fellow-feeling, against which I was the first to raise a finger of warning, that which might be called moral impressionism, is one symptom the more of the excessive physiological irritability which is peculiar to everything decadent. That movement which attempted to introduce itself in a scientific manner on the shoulders of Schopenhauer's morality of pity, a very sad attempt, is in its essence the movement of decadence in morality, and as such it is intimately related to Christian morality. Strong ages and noble cultures see something contemptible in pity, in the love of one's neighbor, and in a lack of egoism and of self-esteem. Ages should be measured according to their positive forces. Valued by this standard, that prodigal and fateful age of the Renaissance appears as the last great age, 
while we moderns, with our anxious care of ourselves and love of our neighbors, with all our unassuming virtues of industry, equity, and scientific method, with our lust of collection, of economy, and of mechanism, represent a weak age. Our virtues are necessarily determined, and are even stimulated, by our weakness. Equality, a certain definite process of making everybody uniform, which only finds its expression in the theory of equal rights, is essentially bound up with a declining culture. The chasm between man and man, class and class, the multiplicity of types, the will to be one's self, and to distinguish oneself, that, in fact, which I call the pathos of distance, is proper to all strong ages. The force of tension, nay, the tension itself, between extremes, grows slighter every day. The extremes themselves are tending to become obliterated to the point of becoming identical. All our political theories and state constitutions, not by any means excepting the German Empire, are the logical consequences, the necessary consequences of decline. The unconscious effect of decadence has begun to dominate even the ideals of the various sciences. My objection to the whole of English and French sociology still continues to be this, that it knows only the decadent form of society from experience, and with perfectly childlike innocence takes the instincts of decline as the norm, the standard of sociological valuations. Descending life, the decay of all organizing power, that is to say, of all that power which separates, cleaves gulfs, and establishes rank above and below, formulated itself in modern sociology as the ideal. Our socialists are decadents. But Herbert Spencer was also a decadent. He saw something to be desired in the triumph of altruism. 38. My Concept of Freedom Sometimes the value of a thing does not lie in that which it helps us to achieve, but in the amount we have to pay for it, what it costs us. For instance, liberal institutions straightaway cease from being liberal the moment they are soundly established. Once this is attained, no more grievous and more thorough enemies of freedom exist than liberal institutions. One knows, of course, what they bring about. They undermine the will to power. They are the leveling of mountain and valley exalted to a morality. They make people small, cowardly, and pleasure-loving. By means of them the gregarious animal invariably triumphs. Liberalism, or, in plain English, the transformation of mankind into cattle. The same institutions, so long as they are fought for, produce quite other results. Then, indeed, they promote the cause of freedom quite powerfully. Regarded more closely, it is war which produces these results. War in favor of liberal institutions, which, as war, allows the illiberal instincts 
to subsist. For war trains men to be free. What, in sooth, is freedom? Freedom is the will to be responsible for ourselves. It is to preserve the distance which separates us from other men, to grow more indifferent to hardship, to severity, to privation, and even to life itself, to be ready to sacrifice men for one's cause, oneself included. Freedom denotes that the virile instincts which rejoice in war and in victory prevail over other instincts, for instance, over the instincts of happiness. The man who has won his freedom, and how much more so, therefore, the spirit that has won its freedom, tramples ruthlessly upon that contemptible kind of comfort which tea-grocers, Christians, cows, women, Englishmen, and other Democrats worship in their dreams. The free man is a warrior. How is freedom measured in individuals as well as in nations? According to the resistance which has to be overcome, according to the pains which it costs to remain uppermost. The highest type of free man would have to be sought where the greatest resistance has continually to be overcome, five paces away from tyranny, on the very threshold of the danger of thraldom. This is psychologically true if, by the word tyrants, we mean inexorable and terrible instincts which challenge the maximum amount of authority and discipline to oppose them. The finest example of this is Julius Caesar. It is also true politically. Just examine the course of history. The nations which were worth anything, which got to be worth anything, never attained to that condition under liberal institutions great danger made out of them something which deserves reverence. That danger alone can make us aware of our resources, our virtues, our means of defense, our weapons, our genius, which compels us to be strong. First principle. A man must need to be strong, otherwise he will never attain it. Those great forcing houses of the strong of the strongest type of men that have ever existed on earth, the aristocratic communities like those of Rome and Venice, understood freedom precisely as I understand the word, as something that one has, and that one has not, as something that one will have, and that one seizes by force. 39. A CRITICISM OF MODERNITY Our institutions are no longer any good. On this point we are all agreed. But the fault does not lie with them, but with us. Now that we have lost all the instincts out of which institutions grow, the latter on their part are beginning to disappear from our midst because we are no longer fit for them. Democracy has always been the death agony of the power of organization. Already in Human All Too Human, Part 1, Aphorism 472, I pointed out that modern democracy, together with its half-measures, of which the German Empire is an example, was a decaying form of the state. 
For institutions to be possible, there must exist a sort of will, instinct, imperative, which cannot be otherwise than anti-liberal to the point of wickedness. The will to tradition, to authority, to responsibility for centuries to come, to solidarity in long family lines forward and backwards in infinitum. If this will is present, something is founded which resembles the Imperium Romanum, or Russia, the only great nation today that has some lasting power and grit in her, that can bide her time, that can still promise something. Russia, the opposite of all wretched European petty statism and neurasthenia, which the foundation of the German Empire has brought to a crisis. The whole of the Occident no longer possesses those instincts from which institutions spring, out of which a future grows. Maybe nothing is more opposed to its modern spirit than these things. People live for the present. They live at top speed. They certainly live without any sense of responsibility, and this is precisely what they call freedom. Everything in institutions which makes them institutions is scorned, loathed, and repudiated. Everybody is in mortal fear of a new slavery, wherever the word authority is so much as whispered. The decadence of the valuing instinct, both in our politicians and in our political parties, goes so far that they instinctively prefer that which acts as a solvent, that which precipitates the final catastrophe. As an example of this, behold modern marriage. All reason has obviously been divorced from modern marriage. But this is no objection to matrimony itself, but to modernity. The rational basis of marriage, it lay in the exclusive legal responsibility of the man. By this means, some ballast was laid in the ship of matrimony, whereas nowadays it has a list, now on this side, now on that the rational basis of marriage. It lay in its absolute indissolubleness. In this way it was given a gravity which knew how to make its influence felt in the face of the accident of sentiment, passion, and momentary impulse. It lay also in the fact that the responsibility of choosing the parties to the contract lay with the families. By showing ever more and more favor to love marriages, the very foundation of matrimony, that which alone makes it an institution, has been undermined. No institution ever has been, nor ever will be, built upon an idiosyncrasy. As I say, marriage cannot be based upon love. It can be based upon sexual desire, upon the instinct of property, wife and child as possessions, upon the instinct of dominion, which constantly organizes for itself the smallest form of dominion, the family, which requires children and heirs in order to hold fast, also in the physiological sense, to a certain quantum of acquired power, influence, and wealth, so as to prepare for lasting tasks, and for solidarity in the instincts from one century to another. Marriage as an institution presupposes the affirmation of the greatest and most permanent form of organization. If society cannot, 
as a whole, stand securely for itself into the remotest generations, marriage has no meaning whatsoever. Modern marriage has lost its meaning. Consequently, it is being abolished. 40. THE QUESTION OF THE WORKING MAN The mere fact that there is such a thing as the question of the working man is due to stupidity, or at bottom, to degenerate instincts which are the cause of all the stupidity of modern times. Concerning certain things, no questions ought to be put, the first imperative principle of instinct. For the life of me, I cannot see what people want to do with the working man of Europe, now that they have made a question of him. He is far too comfortable to cease from questioning ever more and more, and with ever less modesty. After all, he has the majority on his side. There is now not the slightest hope that an unassuming and contented sort of man, after the style of the Chinaman, will come into being in this quarter. And this would have been the reasonable course. It was even a dire necessity. What has been done? Everything has been done with a view of nipping the very prerequisite of this accomplishment in the bud. With the most frivolous thoughtlessness, those self-same instincts by means of which a working class becomes possible, and tolerable even to its members themselves, have been destroyed, root and branch. The working man has been declared fit for military service. He has been granted the right of combination and of voting. Can it be wondered at that he already regards his condition as one of distress, expressed morally as an injustice? But again I ask, what do people want? If they desire a certain end, then they should desire the means thereto. If they will have slaves, then it is madness to educate them to be masters. 41. Quote, the kind of freedom I do not mean. Unquote. Translator's footnote. This is a playful adaptation of Max von Schenkendorf's poem Freiheit. The proper line reads... Freiheit die ich meine, the freedom that I do mean. End translator's note. In an age like the present, it simply adds to one's perils to be left to one's instincts. The instincts contradict, disturb, and destroy each other. I have already defined modernism as a physiological self-contradiction. A reasonable system of education would insist upon at least one of these instinct systems being paralyzed beneath an iron pressure, in order to allow others to assert their power, to grow strong, and to dominate. At present, the only conceivable way of making the individual possible would be to prune him, of making him possible, that is to say, whole. The very reverse occurs. Independence, free development, and laissez-aller are clamored for most violently precisely by those for whom no restraint could be too severe. This is true in politics. It is true in art. 
but this is a symptom of decadence. Our modern notion of freedom is one proof the more of the degeneration of instinct. End Part 3 Chapter 9 This recording is in the public domain.